Before we get there, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. These are Paul's words that succinctly remind the Corinthian church of what he says is of first importance, namely, the gospel, the gospel that he was reminding the church of and of which I will seek to remind you today. The gospel is not simply, not only the historical fact of Jesus' death, but also the theological significance of that fact, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And Paul continues that Christ was buried and that he rose again. But once again, Paul is not solely concerned with the historical fact of the resurrection, though that is essential to the faith, as 1 Corinthians 15 continues, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul repeats that Christ's resurrection on the third day was according to the Scriptures. So Paul assumes that what matters is both the historical fact and the theological significance of Christ's death, burial, resurrection. It matters both that Christ was resurrected and that he was resurrected according to the scriptures. But that raises the question, how is Christ's resurrection according to the scriptures? When was the resurrection of the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, the answer to that, in part, is Psalm 16. As Psalm 16 was read earlier, you may have heard all of the first-person pronouns. The psalm is filled with personal references. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Verse 1. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you, verse 2. And you could keep going. So who is speaking in this psalm? It seems at first that the answer would clearly be David. As you saw in the superscription, a mictum of David. That mictum is a type of psalm. Uh, It's hard to understand exactly what that is. It's debated, but... Anyway, it's of David. Yet the answer is not that simple. Read with me verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now notice with me the last part of the verse. The speaker is expressing confidence in a divine promise. The Lord has guaranteed something concerning his future. And the promise is that God's Holy One will not literally see corruption, as the ESV reads. He will not see corruption. The Holy One's body will not remain in the grave and begin to rot and decay. His body will not spoil. 
So this raises the question, is that true of David? And the answer is no. David did see corruption. David's body was laid in a tomb and did not come out. It did undergo decay and corruption. And so we may ask with the Ethiopian eunuch, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? The apostles pick up on this textual predicament and identify that the speaker, at least in part, is Jesus. Indeed, this is their exact line of argumentation as they demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection was according to the scripture. Psalm 16 is one of their favorite proof texts of the resurrection of Jesus. They conclude from Psalm 16 that everyone ought to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom they crucify, as Acts 2 says. So before we take a look at Psalm 16, we should turn to Acts 2 to see what the apostles say about Psalm 16. So Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 32. Here we see the New Testament's inspired interpretation of Psalm 16 as God the Holy Spirit carries along Peter on the day of Pentecost. And as he preaches, he interprets Psalm 16 and exhorts his readers based, or his hearers, based on the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 2, 22 to 32. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which are all witnesses. That's Acts 2, 22 to 32. So in verses 25 to 28, Peter quotes Psalm 16, 8 to 11. And Peter introduces the quotation by saying, David says of him. And then he proceeds to quote Psalm 16, maintaining the first-person pronouns, I and my and me. 
So Peter understands that this psalm of David is at least in part the very words of Jesus. As the pen of David writes Psalm 16, he is also writing the words of Jesus. Thus Jesus, as it were, is saying to God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. As we saw, Peter points out that this cannot simply be a reference to David. He says, regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David saw corruption. His body is decaying. But David knew the psalm, uh, psalm 132 and 2 Samuel 7, where God promised that his son would reign on a throne forever. And thus David is prophesying in Psalm 16 of the Messiah. Similarly, in Acts 13, Paul quotes the same thing, and he argues similarly. Acts 13, 32 to 39. Acts 13, 32 to 39. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God was, has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Thus, Peter and Paul conclude from Psalm 16 that Jesus would die and he would be resurrected according to the scriptures. Friends, this is the gospel. That the Messiah, Jesus, came to earth and he was born of a virgin and he did not sin. He lived a fully human life without sin. And he took upon himself the sins of all who will ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And he did that on the cross. He bled and died to satisfy God's wrath against sin as the scriptures foretold. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day, as Psalm 16 told us he would. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again to judge the wicked and to resurrect and save those who trust in him. And he calls all to repent of their sins and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel that David spoke of beforehand. He spoke of this Messiah and his resurrection that would be the, re the basis for the resurrection of the saints unto eternal life. Now, it's with this background that we turn to Psalm 16 again to look more closely at the psalm. 
our preliminary exploration of verse 10 tells us that these words are the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking here. Yet, all who are united to Jesus by faith also can say these words. And so as we go through it, these words can both be spoken by us as God's people and by Jesus. And I won't distinguish it for the sake of not being repetitive. Um, But as you meditate on this psalm in your own time, you can consider how these words can be spoken by Jesus as well as yourself. So read with me again verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Here there's a plea, a prayer, a, a request. And the request is a personal one. Preserve me. The request indicates a recognition of personal need. I am in need. I need help. It's not just other people who need help. I need your help. I call out to you. Preserve me. Help me. And the request concerns personal preservation. There is a recognition here that there are present and anticipated dangers. There are threats that stare us down. And it goes unnamed in the psalm. It could be the idolatry mentioned in verse 4, but it's unclear. So this allows us to widely apply the danger that he is seeking preservation from. Maybe it's the words and fists of evildoers. Maybe it's disease and sickness. The anticipation of death. The loss of a job. Spouses or kids or friends who have strayed from the Lord. Good longings that go unfulfilled. And for us, personal sin and unbelief. Preserve me, O God. The request is for keeping, guarding, sustaining, and protection through all of these things. Preserve me. But to whom does the psalmist seek refuge? To whom does he run? Preserve me, O God. They seek refuge in God. The soul that seeks preservation is not content to look within itself for safety. Rather, the godly soul looks outside of itself to God. As Robert Murray McChain famously put it, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And the reason for this is because there is a recognition that we cannot help ourselves. We cannot preserve ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves. We need kept by God, preserved by God, sustained by God, protected by God. This is exactly the logic of the end of the verse. Preserve me, O God, for, notice the for, I take refuge in you. Often our hearts are tempted to think quite differently. Preserve me, O God, for I was really good today. Preserve me, O God, for I'm not like those people. Preserve me, O God, for I do great ministry work. Or you can fill in what you're tempted to believe. 
but the grounds for God's preserving work is simply that the soul has taken refuge in the God who preserves. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Now, one author states this point well. The logic of the prayer is that of a child's. Save me for no other reason than that I'm in danger and I've run to you for help. Keep me because I seek safety and protection in you. Not keep me because of my past or future faithfulness. Not preserve me because I'm useful or because I'm worthy. Just preserve me because I'm frightened and I'm here and my eyes are looking to you. Psalm 16 tells us of no historical context or particular emergency that this cry arises out of. This is simply the constant cry of the saint as they feel their deep sense of need for God. Indeed, this cry is all the more needed for us as sinners because we do not just have external threats, we also have internal threats. In our hearts, we find sin and doubt and a desire to just give up. And so we should cry, preserve me, O God. So brothers and sisters, when we face dangers and threats, where do you run? When we sense danger, do we seek refuge in God? Do we run to him? Or do we run away from him to ourself, to earthly shelters, to worldly things, to false idols? We should say, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. We read in verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. On the lips of the Lord Jesus and the saints is a confession that the Lord is their Lord. It is not simply an acknowledgement that God is the Lord, but that this God is in reference to me as my Lord. Again, one author put it this way, don't miss the fact that these weighty theological truths are deeply personal. He doesn't merely confess that Yahweh is the Lord, He says, you are my Lord. What wonders are embedded in that little possessive pronoun? The infinite and eternal fountain of goodness somehow, someway belongs to me. In his infinite all-sufficiency, he condescends and allows me to call him mine. My Lord, my master, my king. This is what the Lord Jesus does in his incarnate life when he says, my God, my God, on the cross. And it's also true of us. Paul summarizes conversion in Romans 10, 9, saying that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is opposed to the wicked, to the wicked who reject God and say in Psalm 12, 4, Who is Lord over us? But this is not simply an initial one-time cry. It is the continued 
declaration of the saints. Saints say often, you are my Lord. This is partly what we do when we gather, right? We're declaring this God is my Lord. And that's what we do daily. We cannot help but say, oh God, you are my Lord. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. This last part of the verse is especially difficult to interpret and translate. It is clear that the phrase conveys that the Lord is supreme above humanity in one way or another. Yet the precise meaning is difficult to understand. The way I understand it is best conveyed by the translation, My good is not above you. My good is not above you. This then is essentially saying what the rest of the psalm says. So even if uh, the understanding of this verse is not correct, it's still what the rest of the psalm is saying. It is a confession of the supreme worth of God. So the idea goes something like this. Let's rank all of our goods. We have a nice juicy steak grilled to perfection and seasoned perfectly. A nice walk on a sunny day with the bright blue skies and the sun is just shining perfectly. The deep laughter that you experience with close friends. The loving presence of your family. You make your list. And that's good to make a list as you express gratitude to God. But when the psalmist says, my good is not above you, he's saying this, way at the top is God. My good, all these things, is not above you. All that I have is far, far, far below you. All my blessings, all my gifts I have are not above you. Nothing I possess is above you. There is not a single thing that is better than you. You are infinitely greater than all I have. You are my ultimate good. So the question is, do you say that? Do you say, you are my Lord. My good is not above you. Verse 3, as, the, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So here the psalmist shifts his attention. He had his head held upward in verses 1 to 2, directing his praise to God. Now in verses 3 to 4, he turns his, his face outward. When he looks out, what does he see? Well, the first thing he sees is the saints. As for the saints, he begins. What does he think about when he sees the saints? I get so frustrated at them. I hate that this person does that. And that person, oh, I can't stand that person. I wish I didn't have to see that person. I'm not talking to them. Is that what he says? No, he says, in whom is all my delight. Brothers and sisters, were you excited to come to church today? 
I know that there's always things that are not what we want. There's always something we wish was different. I wish we had this different. I wish the relationships were different. I know that. But we ought to have the perspective of the psalmist. As for the saints, they, all my delight is in them. So brothers and sisters, who do you most love to be with? What is your favorite place to be? Do you think fondly of the saints? Do you need to go reconcile with anyone in the body? These are the types of questions that verse 3 causes us to ask. The person who delights in God, who has no good above God, as we saw in verse 2, also delights in his saints. The one who loves God also loves others. This is similar to how Jesus summarizes the two greatest commandments, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we ought to have a genuine joy, a genuine love for the saints specifically our fellow church members, because they are our family. They are the holy ones, the saints that we delight in. But as we saw in the beginning, as we considered Acts 2 and 13, this psalm does not just concern us. Jesus is also the speaker. The words of verse 3 are also the words of Jesus. As for the saints... They are the ones in whom is all my delight. Jesus loves his saints. How beautiful is this? Jesus loves his saints. He delights in his people. Consider these scriptures that tell us this truth. Ephesians 5.9 says that he cherishes the church. 2 Samuel 22.20 He rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 149.4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Isaiah 62.4 and 5, you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So when the psalmist looks around, he sees the saints, but then he sees another group, those who worship false gods. Look with me at verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. He describes these people in a very interesting way. The NASB reads, those who have bartered for another God. That word, bartered, is only used in the context of paying 
for uh, paying a bride price. In other words, the idea is that these people have betrothed themselves to other gods. They have committed spiritual adultery and have sought to be married to false gods. Now, as you just heard read in Isaiah 62, the Lord marries his people and these unbelievers seek to marry another god. The marriage in Isaiah 62 produces fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But this marriage in verse 4 does not produce joy. As he says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. Brothers and sisters, being wedded to other gods produces sorrow. Unbelievers do not have it off better than we do. At times, it may seem, as we actually sung, it may seem that believers have lives that are filled with great pleasure. Indeed, Scripture acknowledges that it can sometimes feel this way. Psalm, Psalm 73 says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. That's how it can feel sometimes. But saints, the ungodly life is not to be coveted. Psalm 37, 1-2. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. You may see unbelievers prospering and indulging their flesh. But their prosperity will not satisfy. Your flesh will not satisfy you. Their sorrows will be multiplied, potentially in this life, but certainly in the sad reality of eternal torment. And that's why we evangelize, so that people will escape multiplication of sorrows in hell, but that they will be rescued from that and see eternal joy in God. The happy life is found in confessing the Lord as our Lord. The psalmist then resolves two things in light of seeing the wicked and knowing the sorrow that comes from it. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So here the psalmist explains that he will not participate in their false worship. He will totally abstain from idolatrous practices. Not only that, but he will not take their names upon their lips. It seems that this is speaking of not esteeming unbelievers. He's not going to draw attention to them and their sinful deeds. He's not going to put them forward as role models of this is what you should look like. He's not going to commune with them too closely. This is similar to Psalm 1-1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In verses 5 to 6, the psalmist turns his attention back to the Lord as he does for the rest of the psalm. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. 
The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. These verses are filled with geographical language. Inheritance, lot, lines used to draw boundaries, and heritage. This was often used in the Old Testament to speak of the land that the Lord allotted to the tribes of Israel. Specifically, the law spoke of the Levites not receiving a specific inheritance from the Lord. Rather, their inheritance was God. Numbers 18.20, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Yet Jesus and the saints say the same thing. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Thus, Psalm 16 envisions that this gift of God, of himself, to a select group of people is not just restricted to a select group of people. It was not to remain with just a few. Rather, God's gift of himself was to extend outward to more and more people. Non-Levites can receive the Lord as their inheritance. Anyone who confesses, verse 2, you are my Lord, can have the same divine gift. And the gift is God. It's not just other things. The gift is God. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. The psalmist says this in Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Lamentations 3, 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Now, this is in contrast to the wicked. Psalm eleven six, Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Or Psalm 17, Deliver my soul from the wicked with your hand, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. What is the gift of God? The gift of God is himself. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The Lord is my portion. In verse 7, the psalmist responds with praise and blessing. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The reason for blessing the Lord is given. He is the one who counsels. So this begs the question, how does the Lord counsel his people? Wisdom does not just come from our superior intellects. Instruction comes from God's word. So, do you need counsel? Do you need instruction? Run to God's word. God's counsel is available to you. It is not hidden. It is not inaccessible. It is not as if God is hiding from you what he wants to instruct you. He will instruct you through his word. 
For example, Proverbs 9, 3-4 says, Wisdom calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. Or James 1, 5, which we probably all know. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God generously gives instruction to his people through his word. The result, then, is that the psalmist contemplates his words. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Literally, night is in the plural. So the idea is that night after night after night, he is considering Scripture. And it may take many nights to gain insights and counsel from God's Word. But the mind trained slowly by considering Scripture provides counsel and instruction. It's like Psalm 1 again, Psalm 1-2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Is the counsel of the Lord what you think about at night? Is that what goes through your head at night? Or maybe we might be tempted in the opposite direction to think that we are wise and thus don't need instruction. Jeremiah 9 says this to that kind of temptation. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Finally, consider with me verses 8 to 11. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So here the psalmist portrays the Lord as constantly being right in front of him. That's verse 8. He is sure to keep God right in front of his face, He's never taking his eyes off of God. He's got his eye on the prize. He's meditating day and night on the Lord. And he expresses confidence in his future hope. He gives us two reasons why this, why this is. First, the reason is divine promise. Verse 10, you will not, nor will you. So promises. And second, divine presence. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Scripture consistently presents God's presence as a reason for confidence. For example, Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Or Hebrews 13.5 and 6, He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? 
what confidence ought we to have if the Lord Jesus said to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The result of God's presence and God's promise is that they produce a sense of joy. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Happiness is not a bad thing. Indeed, it's actually fitting and expected. But this happiness is not left undefined to be filled in however we want. Rather, happiness is to be found in God. As verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. That word fullness is always used in connection to food. So the idea is that your joy, as it were, has a stomach. Joy gets hungry. It rumbles and it growls and it longs for satisfaction. What can satisfy it? How can your joy be full and no longer hunger? The simple answer is your presence. God's face is what satisfies the saints' joy. When the saints see God, they are full. Their hunger goes away. And that's why we read John 6:35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As John Piper explains, this verse conveys two ideas, fullness and forever. Fullness concerns the quality, the depth, the capacity of joy. And forever concerns the length and the time of joy. Is there any greater quality than fullness? Is there any greater length than forever? And the answer is clearly no. Fullness of joy and pleasures forever are found in God. Everything else fails that test. Nothing can make your joy not hungry. All other pleasures cannot satisfy your hunger for joy. Their well is not deep enough. Other pleasures won't last long enough. They go away. They're destroyed. They are not eternal. But God, on the other hand, He gives fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Or to be more precise, God is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. The joy is being with God. So this means, brothers and sisters, that our future is bright. As Christ was resurrected, so too will we be resurrected. We will inherit God. We will have our joy full in his presence. We will have pleasure with him forever. So as Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen to 20, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal.
as we went through the psalm, we considered the need for God to preserve his people, the supremacy of God as the highest good, Christ's love for the saints, as well as our love for the saints, the sorrows of the ungodly, and that we inherit God and all the joy that is to be found in being with him. But if nothing else, Peter summarizes what our takeaway from Psalm 16 should be. Acts 2.36, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let us pray together. O God, preserve us, for we take refuge in you. You are our Lord. We have no good above you. Our inheritance, O God, is beautiful and pleasant because it's you. Help us to know that. Help us to enjoy that, God. Help us to find our happiness in you. Lord, grant us a sense of of confidence in your promises and of your presence. Pray this all for the sake of your name. Amen.